So if you were to turn to Philippians 2, we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 18. If you don't have a Bible, uh, there should be some in your row that you can use this morning. Hope everybody had a good time with family, good Christmas, got every gift you ever wanted, and a happy new year to us all. Excited to jump back into Philippians, where we continue uh, Paul's letter to this young church at Philippi, where he, remember, he is uh, incarcerated, he's in jail, he's under house arrest in Rome, writing this letter, where he makes reference of his chains often in this letter. So remember, he's writing this as a, as a, a pastor, as a father figure to this young church who he, he planted um, years ago, about 10 to 12 years uh, earlier. And so here he's writing, and he calls them beloved. He is, they, are, they are his family. He can't be with them in person, and so he's writing this letter to encourage them and to challenge them. So if you would please stand for the reading of God's word. It's from Philippians 2, 12 through 18. This is God's holy word. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, as we bow our heads and close our eyes and humble ourselves before your word, would you impart this truth to us? We need to be reminded of your promise. We need to be rid of your presence in our lives. As we look forward to a new year, as we look back on your faithfulness, and even through the struggles we've had, we know you'll be with us and guide us, and care for us, even as you cared for this young church in the first century. You're with us even now to the 21st century. Encourage us now. Open our eyes to the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Last Sunday, Christmas Eve, we looked at Psalm 8 together. And you remember in Psalm 8, David, the psalmist, had us look up into the heavens and do some stargazing. And to see the lights that he'd placed up there, the sun, moon, and stars. And be reminded that God created it all. That he's the creator of everything we see. He's not only the creator, but he's also the God who cares. And in that psalm, David, David asks, you know, who, who, are, who are we? That you are mindful of us, God. You've created this vast universe, yet you have placed this crown on the head of mankind, or your crowning achievement. And so David is amazed by the fact that he's creator, but he's also the the God who cares. And as we turn to this chapter, we're reminded that we, followers of Jesus, those who look and believe upon Christ for salvation, 
In a, in a similar way, we shine as lights, just as the lights we see in the sky, in the darkness. We shine as lights in the darkness in the world around us. And this is not a light of our own making. It's not a light we've created, but it's the light, the true light of Jesus. It's the light we've been shown, the grace and the mercy and the love we've been shown in Christ. When the Lord Jesus, who came down in humility and and became a man and lived the perfect life in our place, died perfectly in our place and rose to a triumphant resurrection in our place. That's the light that's come into the world and made us into lights as well. So Paul's main point in this passage is that God calls us to be lights in a dark world. And he does that in three ways, three ways we're going to look at this morning that he calls us to be lights through the obedience that he works in us, through the contentment that he creates in us, and through the witness that he orchestrates for us. So we are lights in in a dark world when we're called to obedience, called to contentment, and called to witness for him. Let's look first at this idea that we're called to obedience In verse 12, look how he begins. Therefore, whenever you're reading Paul, remember he is um, very logical. He's building an argument in his letters very often. And so when he says, therefore, you need to ask, why why is the therefore? What's the there, therefore, right? What is it pointing back to? Well, look at the passage right before verse 12. It points us to what Jesus has done, this amazing hymn-like reminder of what Christ has done. In verse 4 and 5, he says, Let each of you not look only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul's reminding the church, don't just serve, don't serve yourself, serve others. And, and what does he give as the example? He gives Christ, Jesus, our example. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So understand the logic of Paul. He's saying, therefore obey. So therefore, because of what Christ has done, obey. He's giving us gospel logic. He's saying, obey in thankfulness, not as a way to earn salvation, but as in thankfulness to what Christ has done for you, for Christ's perfect obedience for you, obey. Obey. And so it brings up more questions, though, doesn't it, about obedience in the Christian life. How does obedience, how do good works fit into the Christian life? You know, even though the Bible teaches that we're saved by faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone, it does not cancel out the need for obedience in the Christian life. Even though salvation's by grace, it doesn't cancel out the necessity for good works. And so why do we need good works? Luther famously said, God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. God doesn't need your good works. Your good works for God do not give you the basis for your salvation. 
Our obedience isn't the basis for our salvation. It's not the way we, we enter into salvation, but it's the outcome. It's the evidence that we're saved. As the reformer said, salvation is by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. Good works are the fruit of a root that has been radically transformed. And it's also not legalistic for Paul to tell us to obey. What is legalism? What do I mean by legalism? Well, legalism is adding anything to the finished work of Jesus for salvation. Adding anything. So if I were to say, you know, you know, I enjoy wearing a tie when I come to preach. But it would be legalistic for me to say, to be saved, you must trust in Jesus. And if you're a man, you have to wear a tie to be saved. Right? To be right with God. That's called legalism. I'm adding something to how you right with God. But it's not legalistic for Paul to tell us to obey. Obedience is the natural implication of a life that's been loved by God, that's been shown loved by Christ, that's been saved from our sin and given a new identity. You've been changed. You want to obey. And sin is something we have to strive against our entire lives, but strive against it we must Just because God has promised us forgiveness and grace in Christ doesn't mean we remain slaves to sin. We have a new master, and we're slaves to Jesus Christ, our Lord and sovereign King. So what does Paul say? He says, therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence. Remember, he's saying, I'm not with you physically, it's sort of like when we send our kids to, to stay with grandparents in the weekend. We tell them we want a good report from, from them. We're not with them physically. We're not with them in person. But when they're away from us, we want a good report. We, we want them to obey even more when we're not with them. That's sort of, it's a similar idea. It's almost as if Paul in the Philippians, like they're going off to college, right? And he's, he's home and he wants them to act right. Instead, though, he's in jail and they're at home. Not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's a huge statement. Many people have grappled with I've grappled with that statement. What a, what a statement. And so we're going to a little time on that statement. Work out your own salvation. First, work out. Right? So your salvation is something you need to work at, he's saying. Work on it. It requires work and hard work. Somebody in my family got uh, some free weights, some, some dumbbells this year for Christmas. And then I got my kids to grab the five-pounders and try to do some curls. And immediately they were sore because these aren't muscles they've ever really worked on before. And it's a reminder that if you're going to work out, you're going to get sore. There's gonna be, it's going to be difficult. Work out your salvation. Let's unpack that a bit. He says, work out your own salvation. Your own Let's look at that, that phrase. When I see that, I, it, what it reminds me is that salvation is, is personal. It's individual. It's objective. It's something you can know. Salvation is personal, right? You, what we mean by that is, is God works with each person. You can't rely on the faith of someone else to make you right with God. 
when I, one of the first years I got to Hope, I took the kids on a youth retreat, and I was thinking about, you know, what should I, I'm about a decade older than these kids at the time, and I was thinking, you know, what, what could I teach them? Knowing that I've been out of college, I've been, I've been through seminary, I've been out on my own for a while, and they're still, in, they're still at home, still in their parents' house. I wanted to remind them that you have to own your faith for yourself. That was, my, that was my message to them at that youth retreat. You have to own your faith for yourself. You cannot rely on the faith of your grandparents or your parents to make you personally right with God. It's not how this works. You have to trust in God for yourself. It's personal. It's also individual. God saves unique individuals. We do believe in the covenant people of God, that, that God works with covenant. He works with families and, in, and through families, but he saves individually. Right? He saves individual souls, unique individuals. And it's also objective. Objective. It's something you can know for sure, for certain, that it's true. You can know with 100% certainty that you are right with God. And how do we know that is because Romans 8.16 tells us so. It says, Paul says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. When you are a believer, you can have that assurance. It's a spirit-wrought assurance that you are saved. Certainly, 100%. And the result is peace. You have peace with God. And so he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation. The goal here is salvation. To know you've been rescued, to know you've been saved, to know you're elect, that you're called. 2 Peter 1.10, Peter says something very similar. He says, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election that you've been chosen before the foundation of the world. Confirm it. If, or if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. So there is this, this, this calling on our lives to, to make certain, to work it out. You really can grow in your personal assurance of salvation. One, one practical way you can do this is keep a prayer journal. I don't know if you've ever done that. But maybe this next year, start writing down your prayers. And so by the end of next year, December, look back on your prayers from January and see what the Lord has answered. See where you were, what you were struggling with, and see how he's grown you. You may see in a year some change. If you've been doing it for a decade, you're going to see the Lord at work and how he's been changing you and how he's been growing you. John Bloom says, our works are not decisive in our salvation. Right? They're not the basis. They're not the ground of our salvation. But they are the evidence of God's saving work in us. That's why we must keep at it. We must keep working at it and knowing that we are making our calling and election sure. He, he uses, Paul uses another interesting phrase. He says, work out your salvation, your own salvation, with fear and trembling. Why does he say that? Fear and trembling. What he means there is that, you know, there's a gravity 
There's a weightiness. There's a seriousness to this task because it's life or death. It's eternity, eternity is in the balance. Fear and trembling. But it's also not a fear of God's wrath. We're not, we're not fearing God's punishment upon us because it's all been poured out on Christ. Not you. So it's not fearing his wrath, but it is a godly, thankful fear in light of God calling us to this noble, serious, weighty task. Dennis Johnson writes, it's the fact that both our willing and our doing lie beyond our own resources and can be found only in God's working that makes this whole project a matter of fear and trembling. It's recognizing both our inadequacy and the life or death significance of the situation in which we find ourselves. We need help. We're inadequate to do this ourselves. So there should be fear and trembling. So that's the first thing we're called to is obedience. The obedience he works in us. Secondly, we're called to contentment. We're called to contentment. And, and in this point, I want to really hammer, go down into the idea that verse 13 says, for it's God who works in you. It's God who works in you. Here we heard the command, which is work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, Here's the promise, for God is at work in you. For God is at work in you. What a statement. What an amazing promise. That, that God is presently, not just, not just for the future, God is working on you right now. He's working on me right now, presently. There's something bigger going on in your life than just, than just your own work, than, than, than just your own faith. You know, there are times uh, when you feel, you feel that the Lord is working in a much larger way than, than just your own experience. And for me, I get that feeling every time I go to our denomination's general assembly. And that is once a year, it takes place in different parts of the country. This year, it's going to be in Richmond. Um, you're free to, to come and, and, and worship and be a part of the, of the proceedings. Well, it's a meeting of the church, and thousands of people are there with their wives and families, and we're praying together and we're worshiping together. We're making decisions together. And not everything happens maybe that you exactly want to happen, but you can't get away from the fact that the church is gathered and God is working through the church. But there is something larger taking place that he is orchestrating, that he is pushing the church forward into the world. You know, when we come to passages of Scripture that speak on God's sovereign work in relation to our choices and decisions and efforts toward our obedience, we get a sense of his holiness, don't we? In a sense, we have to come and take our sandals off our feet because we're on holy ground. We come to these passages with a certain sense of awe and humility, knowing we're bumping up against incomprehensibility, that God is at work in us while we work. And yet he gives us these glorious words for big and important reasons. See, God gives us this verse to help us. The Westminster Confession of Faith says, you know, these doctrines about you know, predestination and God's sovereignty, they, 
It says in, in Westminster Confession of Faith 3.8 that it's to be handled with care when we, when we come to these passages. These are deep waters. But they're there so we'd be assured of our eternal election, it says. They're there so that we will praise the Lord, that we will reverence him and admire him. And it will create humility and diligence and consolation to all who sincerely obey the gospel. The good news, friends, that God works in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure is that we aren't the only ones at work here. It's not like God said, all right, I've saved you. Now, good luck. You're going to do great, right? You're going to figure out all this on your own. I've saved you. Now you're good. No, no, salvation is much better than that. He says, I've saved you, and now I'm going to work through you. I'm going to work in you. God isn't asking us to do something that he isn't already committed to. Isn't that good news? That he isn't actively doing himself in and through us. He's working. He's going to work through you, and he is working right now. So what is it that he works in us? For it's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What does he mean by willing and working? Well, by willing, he's talking about desires. When you will something, you want something. And then work, meaning actions. So it's the truth that we need right desires. That we need right desires. And God can work that in us. God wants us to want the right things. And isn't that where all action really takes place? It's, it, it really starts in your desires. God cares about what you think. God cares about what you ponder, what you hope in, what your desires are. Therefore, we should pray, Lord, take away my sinful thoughts. That is where the battle starts, in the heart and in the mind. James knows that clearly in James 4 and James 1. In James 4, he says, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. You see how he's leading us from desire, heart, mind, to action. You desire, you do not have, so you murder, you covet, you cannot obtain, so you fight, you quarrel. And in James 1, 14 and 15, he says, but each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Desire, sin, and death. So we need right desires, but we also need right actions. He's committed both to work in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We need right actions, and God can do that. You know, Augustine, the church father Augustine, had a memorable way of capturing this truth. And let me just encourage you, if you haven't read Augustine, read, read Augustine, read Augustine's Confessions. If you haven't read that, it's, it's a, an amazing, really, prayer journal, essentially. The first prayer journal, um, where he talks about his conversion, and he talks about his faith journey. But he says this, O Lord, give what you command, and then command whatever you will. See what he's saying there? Give what you command, Lord. Give me the ability. Give me, give me the will. Give me the new desire. Give me the action that you are asking for, and then command whatever you will. 
We need God to work in us. That's what Augustine's saying. If God grants the power, we can obey. Now, that's not an excuse to say, I'm waiting on God to give me the power, so I'm not going to try to obey. That's not what it's saying. Remember, we are to work on our salvation with fear and trembling because God works in us. And then Paul says, for his good pleasure. Right? It's for his own pleasure. It's for his own glory. Dennis Johnson says, Paul's point is that Christ's saving work is comprehensive. You see, Jesus rescues us not only from sin's guilt and punishment, but also from sin's controlling power. You're saved as a believer, not just from guilt and punishment, but from the controlling power of sin, that sin that grips you, that forms those habits that you're trying to break. And so Johnson says, in rescuing us from sin's guilt and punishment, Christ does it all apart from us. We're not involved at all in saving us from, our, from sin's punishment. Right? That's all done by Christ's perfect life, perfect death, and resurrection in our place. Right, But in terms of rescuing us from sin's controlling power, the, the, the grip that sin has on your heart, Christ still does it all, but he does it through us. That is what we mean by sanctification. That he does it all, but he does it through us. His spirit enlivens us, it enlists us, and enables us as his allies. So the message to you, to me, is to don't, Give up hope in your fight against sin in your life. In in, in sanctification, God is working on you and through you to change you and enable you to conquer sin's powerful grip. And this is even true for you when you're still battling against sins that you've been battling for decades. That is where we often give up hope, right? It's when we are still dealing with, with lust, when we're still dealing with anger, jealousy, bitterness, and we've asked God to take it away, and it's still there, we're still fighting. God is working, brothers and sisters. He is still working on you, teaching you, growing you. And so it's in that knowledge we can have contentment the contentment he works in us. That's why he tells us, do all things without grumbling. Look at verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Because when things get hard, it's easy to grumble. When life is difficult, when we're still battling that same sin, we're, we, we get in bad moods, we get irritated. And so even grumbling, we can't remove that from our own heart or your own strength. God has to work that in you as you seek to apply the gospel in your life. You know, we, we try every Christmas to remind our kids. We, we do, you know, we give them gifts. We don't go overboard, but we do give them gifts. And we try to have a conversation before Christmas comes about how, you know, these gifts are not going to make you happy in the end. Um, because if you, if you teach your kids that, you're, that all the gifts they're going to get are going to make them happy, you're setting them up for failure. Because <laughs> they're going to move on from that toy, whatever it is. Even if it's the toy of the year, right, they're going to move on from it pretty quickly. And we're always trying to remind them, look, true contentment, true joy, true happiness is found in the Lord only. And that's a lesson I've got to remind myself too. 
not just children. Right? How many of us get wrapped up in, oh, if I had that better, bigger house, if I had that, that new shiny truck, uh, that vacation home, um, that's when I'll be content. No, it's not true. We're still struggling against that. It's so easy to grumble and see the, the grass is greener on the other side of the fence. And he also says disputing. Don't, don't grumble or dispute. Dispute basically means to argue all the time with the irritating persistence. Is there someone in your family over the Christmas holiday you're thinking of that was just arguing with irritating persistence? Sometimes that happens to us. But he says don't fall into those traps. Be content with what God has given you and how he's working in you. Why? So that you may be blameless and innocent. Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. And here he's calling us to our third point, that we're called to witness. We're called to witness to be lights in the darkness. That, that the world is watching the church. The world is wat- watching believers and how we live our lives. And if we're truly content in God or if we're grumbling and disputing like everyone else. We're called to witness. You know, in the evangelism class this past Sunday school semester, we talked a lot about how, you know, the God-ordained events in our lives where we had a chance to share the gospel with someone. And we all kind of talked about those, and it became clear that that those were not accidental conversations. There is no accidental conversation when you share the gospel with someone or have that spiritual conversation at work and share your faith. God orchestrates our very lives, friends. You know, we took our kids to Handel's Messiah. It was down at um, Regent University, Virginia Beach. And um, we didn't stay the whole time. It's long. It started at 7.30. Our kids were tired. But it was amazing. It was amazing. I highly encourage you to go to see it. And you have the orchestra there. And half the time, I just sat there amazed at the conductor. Right? And how involved he was at every rise and fall of the melody, every start and stop of the strings and the wind and percussion sections, you know, holding his little, I want to call it a wand, but what do we call it? A baton. Thank you, Charlie. His baton, waving it around. He was d- dancing and I'm trying, I'm learning. He, you could tell he lived and breathed the music. He knew it. And as it was executed brilliantly, exactly as it had been drawn up. And you see this interplay between him and the musicians, and he's directing, but, and they're following because they're trained as well. And so that is what it looks like between God and us. He's the one orchestrating. He's directing. It's all planned. But we are the ones involved as well. I have this... Just personally, I have this kind of more deterministic bent about the world, about life, a little bit more fatalistic. You know, everything happens for a reason. It's, um, you know. And so I've never really struggled with believing in a God who controls all things. Once I learned that, I didn't always know that, but once I learned it in the Bible, I saw it, I loved it. But... Why it gives me comfort is not just in his control of all things, but in his love. 
It's the combination of love and sovereignty, care and control. It helps me rest from any regret, ultimate regret of my, any mistakes in my life, or rage over the injustice in the world. But I've got to push back against my fatalistic tendency and remind myself that I'm an active character in the grand narrative that God orchestrates. That we're all active characters in this play that we're acting out. His play. And we have his revealed will. We have the script. And we have scripture to live by we, and to learn and to follow. And one of those commands is that, that we're called to follow is to be a witness to the gospel, to the good news that's changed our lives. We're called to be a witness to that. And so we must speak of the truth, goodness, and beauty of Jesus. And how do we do that? The first thing Paul reminds us is that we need to remember our identity, that we are lights in a dark world and that we have light that emanates from us. He says, you shine as lights in the world. Dennis Johnson says, Paul puts a surprising positive spin on the fact that we don't fit here. You ever felt that as a Christian? I'm not really fitting into the culture anymore. Culture's changing. It always changes. Christianity, sometimes popular, sometimes not. We're becoming less and less popular, if you haven't noticed. But all that means is that we will shine brighter in the dark world. The darker the social setting around you, the brighter your Savior shines through you. What does that look like practically? When you value Sunday worship over work, over sports, over leisure. When we value the unborn, the poor, the marginalized. When husbands become servant spiritual leaders in their home. When money and comfort take a back seat to contentment and service to God, that is when the world will say, hey, that's different. That really stands out. And he gives us a specific way to do that. Verse 16, we shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. Hold fast to the word, Paul says. Remind yourself every day of what is true, why it's true, because we're forgetful. I'm forgetful. And we live in a world that's trying to gain, get our attention off of the word of life. Right? We don't really live in a culture that's persecuting us the way Christians have been marginalized, ostracized, and penalized in the past or in other countries today. But we do live in a culture that wants us to compromise to relax, and to become less in love with our Savior and in our allegiance to Him. And so my exhortation to you is don't let the allurements of this world slip in and steal your first love. That's what what Jesus warns the churches of in Revelation 2. He says, I know you're enduring patiently, bearing up for my namesake, and you haven't grown weary, but I have this against you, that you've abandoned the love that you had at first. He says, remember, therefore, from where you fall and repent and do the works you did at first. Friends, we must love the word of life. We must love the Bible. You and your family need the word of life. Do you want to give your family true life? Do you want to give yourself true life this year? How do you do that? Take them to the Bible. Teach the Bible. Read the Bible. Memorize the Bible. Start a reading plan. Sing the Bible. 
Make God's word central to your life, and you will find life to the fullest. That's what Paul's reminding us of. And if we do that, he's telling the Philippians, if you do that, you'll make me proud. But he says, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Right? And if we please Paul, we'll please the Father. And here's how he ends this section. He says, even though I'm, I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and I rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. In the, ancient, in the sanctuary in the Old Testament, the daily morning and evening sacrifices were accompanied by these things called drink offerings, where they would pour wine upon the, the, the slain lamb. And it would enhance this pleasing aroma to the Lord, it says in Numbers 28. And Paul is saying, I'm the drink offering being poured upon your offering, your sacrifice. And what is the result? Joy. Again and again, this letter is about joy, isn't it? He comes back to joy, reminds them that sacrifice means it's not about us. It's not about our comfort, our status, our fame. Instead, we decrease and Jesus increases. We go out of our comfort zones and share and invite others to know Jesus. How will you go out of your comfort zone to be a sacrifice and invite others to know Jesus this year? Let's all plan to do that. And the result will be joy. If, as you see people drawn to the Lord, as you see your faith increased, you'll be joyful. And again, I'm ending where we started. How do we do that? Where do we find the motivation for that? Because Jesus did it perfectly. He lived that perfect life for us. He became obedient unto death. Let's go back to verse 6 again as I close. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. You could even say poured himself out by taking the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Friends, your salvation is secure. You're in God's presence forever. And Jesus is returning. Go tell, go tell others about Jesus. Become a willing sacrifice for him because he is working in you this next year. He's working in you, he's working in me, and we can trust him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you haven't left us to ourself. That even as you call us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, you give us the promise that you are at work in us, both the will and the work for your good pleasure. It's all you, Christ, that you do it through us. You include us in on the process as we learn and grow, as we repent and confess and cling to the cross. So we thank you. Encourage us now as we put this into practice. In Jesus' name, amen.